Good to see everyone this morning. Um, get my iPad where there we go. Um, if you want to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter two, um, we've been working our way through the book of Philippians verse by verse. Um, and today we come to the beginning of chapter two. Um, for those of you who are here regularly, um, Travis has not disappeared. He and Kendra are celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary on their 13th wedding anniversary. Um, they had a, a trip planned to Mexico uh, in the midst of COVID. They got canceled and then they moved and they started in a new church. And so finally, all the stars have aligned and they are getting away to celebrate. So be in prayer for them that it will be a time of rest and recovery um, and a time of fellowship for the two of them together for sure. So, um, A couple of other announcements before we get started. Uh, community groups, Sunday nights at uh, Sarah and I's house, Monday nights at Ken Wynn's house. If you're not a part, would like to be a part, come find me. Um, it's a great way to connect with people um, outside of the one and a half hours on Sunday morning. Um, it's a, you know, we, as we think about how we structure our, our programs here, um, these community groups are really a place to connect. They're about building relationships with one another, finding common fellowship with one another, um, finding encouragement with one another. Um, so I encourage you to be a part of that. It's a vital, vital part of what we do as a church. Um, we're also getting ready to start discipleship groups. Um, there is an email that goes out every week. You can go to the website to sign up. Um, those groups are, are much more focused on our life in Christ um, and, and much more focused on the things we've been talking about as a church over the last year. So the practice of the spiritual disciplines and how those play out in our lives. Um, and it will be a very intentional time once a month um, where you come together with a group of, of men or women to, to find mutual encouragement to, to continue on in those things faithfully. So um, if that's of interest to you, uh, whether it be the email or the website, you can sign up there. Um, last thing, uh, for those of you who may not have been here much, there, there's an entire another contingent of the church about 300 feet down that hallway. Um, so... There's probably eight to ten adults down there right now taking care of a plethora of small children. Um, so if you want to connect with some more people, you can find your way down the hallway after we finish here. So, so let's turn our attention to Philippians. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in the, the first four verses of chapter two. Um, but we're going to actually start reading at the end of chapter one this morning. A Co couple of kind of introductory notes for you on Philippians and this passage we're about to read. So, so Paul has written the, the book of Philippians to the church at Philippi. Um, Philippi, <laughs> let's just say, was not a friendly place to the believer in first century Rome. Um, lots of persecution, uh, lots of just violence in, in, in total as a society. Uh, Paul is writing to them from prison in Rome. Um, so Paul is in his own place of personal distress the church in Philippi is in its own place of distress. So this is the context from which Paul is writing. Um, and he pens this book of Philippians that we come back to over and over and over again as, as kind of our instruction manual on how to find joy in Christ. Um, chapter 2 starts with the word so, <laughs> which means, okay, we got to read what becomes before it or what we're about to read doesn't make any sense. So we're going to start reading this morning in verse 27 of chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, I want you to, to have in your mind, we're going to read these four verses like this. So Paul starts off with an if-then statement. If this, then this. So for those of you who have studied logic or think back to your days of literature, uh, this if-then statement is a statement of equivocation. So if the first is true, then the second must be true and vice versa. If the second isn't true, then the first isn't true. Paul then goes on to expound in verses 3 and 4 on the how. So if the first part, if statement A is true, then statement B is true, and here's how those two things are true together. So when we get to the first part of chapter 2, keep that in your mind. Before we read, um, let me pray for you. You pray for me, um, and we'll, we'll go before our Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the testament of Paul to the church at Philippi. Thank you that we have these, these words written for us so that we may read them, so that we may understand them. 
Father, we, we know we live in a, in a day and a time of distraction where, where our minds struggles to concentrate and to put aside the, the distractions of the day. So, Father, we ask that as we come here that you, you do your supernatural work in our hearts and our minds and our spirits, that you quiet our souls, um, that you give us fertile ground to hear your word and to learn from it. Father, we, we, we pray that, that as we come to your word, um, that we just don't see this as another exercise and something we have to do this week, but that we, we echo Paul's words in, in 1 Corinthians, that, that we come to your word to behold your glory so that we may be set free and pursue your marvelous light. Father, I, I ask for myself that, that I lay aside my, my difficulties and my struggles and my imperfections and that, that I allow your word to speak and to do what it has done for some 8,000 years. Father, we love you. Thank you for your kindness to us. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 1, verse 27. Um, Travis preached this last week, um, so I won't spend a ton of time on this, but it does have a lot of bearing because of that word so on what we're going to talk about today. So starting in verse 27, Paul says this to the church at Philippi, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. So it brings a question at this point. Paul's, Paul's saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you. I want your life to be worthy of what you've been called to. And so in my mind, then things that would follow would be some moral declaration. Like you should be doing or this should be happening. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear t sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul doesn't, doesn't give a moral declaration. He doesn't say that you should be doing or that you should not be doing. What does Paul say? He says, what I want to hear of you and my encouragement in you is that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the, the impact of that is a clear sign to them of the, the society in Philippi, this violent society that seeks their destruction. It's a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29 should ring in our hearts and souls. I could literally spend two hours just preaching this verse, but Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul's referencing his imprisonment in Rome, all that he's been through on his missionary journeys. Um, Paul is essentially telling the church at Philippi, and by extension us, uh, this ain't easy, as they say. Um, our, our promise is not ease, our promise is suffering. Then we come to chapter 2, and there's the word so. And here's where our if, then, and how statement starts. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. There's your if. Here comes your then. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's your how. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul, chapter 1, verse 27, what does he desire? That you may be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where does, where does Paul find his joy? He finds it in the church at Philippi, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. 
So let, let, let's, just, let's just outline where we're going. So if, then how, right? If, verse 1, then verse 2, how, verses 3 and 4. So our if are what I call the pleasantries. Uh, and I will confess to you that I have a bad habit of when I read scriptures, I just skip over pleasantries. Introductions, you know, it's like, okay, this is like the prologue to the book. I don't really care. Like, give me to the real stuff. There's only one problem in this particular instance. What Paul is describing in verse 1 is the life we are to live. Day in, day out, day after day, whether in ease or affliction, pain, joy, whatever it may be, this is the life we are to live. So here's what Paul is describing. Here, here's the way our lives should be. Encouragement in Christ. That's freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear, freedom from worry. Any comfort from love, this is rest, this is care, this is embrace. Being of the same mind, sorry, not being of the same mind. Participation in the spirit, that, that's power, that's strength for the way in which we live our lives. And then any affection and sympathy, and this is communal fellowship together, time together, connection. So these are not just introductions. These are not just pleasantries that we kind of read as like, yeah, 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 I get the point, Paul. Imagine being a first century Christian in Philippi, in a violent society, where a lot of the violence is aimed at you, and Paul comes to you and says, this is the life that's available to you in that context. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love. Participation in the Spirit. And affection and sympathy. The, the juxtaposition is stark. Everything in their context and the world around them is dark and meaningless and hopeless. And Paul says, but wait, 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 wait. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve wants you free from your fear. He wants you, he, he wants you to rest in him. He wants you to find peace in who he is. He wants you to live with power and assurance through the ministry of the Spirit. And he wants you to commune with one another, that he, even in this chaotic world around you, that there's fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters. This is the life that Paul says is available to the church at Philippi. So that's our if. So if, if that is available to us, then how do we get there? Then what is the second truth that must be available to us to make those things happen? Yet again, you would think something along the lines of, well, the church at Philippi, you got to do A, B, C, D, E, and F, and you will arrive at this life that I've just described. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, complete my joy, being Paul's joy, we'll come back to that. By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So what, what's, what's Paul describing here? What, what do these words, what does these words mean? At, at a base level, what Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi to be is to be unified. To be unified in thought, to be unified in affection, to be unified in action. Now yet again, remember the context. Violent society, they're being attacked on every side. You can imagine how disunity would rise up in this context. You put pressure on anything, and you find out real quick what's important to people. What do they really care about? What's really important to them? What are their concerns? What are their fears? What are their anxieties? What are all these things? And Paul comes to that and says, if you want, if you want that abundant life, if you want the if of verse 1, then it comes through unity in your body. It comes through unity in affection, unity in action, unity in thought. I think we start to realize pretty quickly that what Paul's describing here is not something that we can do in our flesh. I mean, you, you get four people together. <laughs> we'll use the great example. You get four people together to decide what carpet to put in a church. How many opinions are you going to have? You're going to have four, right? And how do you ever get those four people to agree? Good luck. I, I don't know. Uh, this has been the tale as old as time, right? But look at what's at stake here. Verse 1's at stake. All of those things, our encouragement in Christ, our comfort from love, our participation in the Spirit, our affection and our sympathy, 
those are at stake. And even more, what, is, what does Paul say? What does Paul say about what this means to him? So Paul, Paul is hundreds of miles away in Rome. And what is the effect for Paul? His joy. Paul says, my joy in you is your unity. So this begs a great question. Then how? How does this reality come to be? How in the face of trial and persecution and difficulty and suffering with competing allegiances and affections and desires and thoughts and convictions, how does unity come? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what's Paul saying here? These are not, not hard words to understand, but impossible words to put into practice. So Paul's saying, as it relates to how we have unity in the church, how do we have, how does this church in Philippi have unity together? How does this supernatural condition come to be? He says it's very simple. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Done. Done. It's only one problem. We're really bad at knowing ourselves. We don't know when we're doing something from selfish ambition most of the time. Or we convince ourselves that it's the right thing to do. We don't know when we're being conceited. We're blinded. Can't see these things. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so Paul starts to drill down into what is the soil in which this unity can grow? What are the conditions under which a church can have Unity in spirit, unity in affection, unity in action. It's in humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, here's the uncomfortable part. Paul does not say, but in humility, count those that you like more significant than yourselves. He does not say, in humility, count the ones you respect as more significant than yourselves. He says, in humility, count others. And here's the challenge for us. Others includes the people we don't like, the people we don't respect, the people we think are dumb, the people we think have no place. Those are the people that Paul's talking about. We are to count those people as more significant than ourselves. I, uh, I, I, I will, I'm going to, I'm not a storyteller, but I'm going to tell you this story. I've actually got three stories this morning, so you guys are in luck if you like stories. Um, we were, we were at First Baptist Covington, this was 10 or so years ago, and at that time, I, I was doing a lot of work in the, the kind of uh, overseas missionary world, remote places, all those sorts of things, and I, I'd went to an event and had heard about, um, uh, a ministry called the Sea Company. They do Bible translations and uh, a really cool project that they were doing with churches where essentially they would come to a church and they would tell you about a need in a part of the world. So we need to translate the New Testament in Uradina in Peru. And they would say, okay, it's going to cost us 20 grand to do that. And they would walk your church through what it looks like, how to fundraise for that, how to support the translator, so on and so forth. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool idea. I think First Baptist should do this. So a few months go by, I go, go, to, um, go to breakfast with one of the pastors. I'm like, hey, I think this would be a really cool idea. And he's like, yeah, 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 I think that'd be great. And I'm like, okay, I know what that means. I've been around long enough, I know how that goes. And so, you know, I kind of went home like, you know, a little bitter, so on and so forth. Fast forward six months later, breakfast with the same guy. And he was like, hey, I heard about this great Bible translation thing. <laughs> what do you think I should do? And I was like, I, I think it's a great idea. And in the, the back of my head, the Lord was, the, what the Lord was telling me was, it doesn't matter how I do my work, and it doesn't matter if you have anything to do with it. What's important is that the work happens. And so, so often, and we'll talk about this more, so often we take our, our, our fleshly desires and the gods of our day, and we bring them into our churches, 
And that is the, the root of disunity, that I want the credit, I want it done this way, I want it, 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 I want it. There's only one problem. This is one church, and we can't all have it 90 different ways. Um, so what does that leave us with? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Can we talk about how well this has weathered the test of time? I mean, this, this text is over 2,000 years old. And you fast forward 2,000 years later, and it's like, yeah, uh-huh. This is exactly the same thing the church has been dealing with for millennia. Well, you want unity in your church? Look after not only your own interests, but the interest of others. Consider others more significant to yourself. So, let's just recap what the text is telling us. So, if, then, how. So if there, if there is this abundant life in Christ, this encouragement in Christ, this participation in the Spirit, if that is true, then that is expressed as a unity in the church. And how that unity occurs is through us considering others more significant than ourselves, laying our opinions aside and pursuing unity above all. So for those of you who have been around for me to preach, every time I preach, there's two things I want to answer. What does the text mean? We just did that. What does the text mean for us in 2023, sitting in Oxford, Georgia? That's the next question we're going to answer. For us to do that, we need to talk a little bit about us, about who we are as 21st century Americans, who we are as people sitting in a church at Haynes Creek, there, there's a, a pastor in the, the Pacific Northwest. His name is John Mark Homer. He's written a couple of books that I would highly commend to you. Um, but, but one of them is a book called Live No Lies. Uh, I, I refer to those of you who are theological geeks. Uh, to me, John Mark Homer is the 21st century John Owen. So John Owen's famous quote is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Um, John Mark Homer is along the same lines. He just wears skinny jeans, V-necks, and drinks a lot of coffee. So. Um, but John Mark Comer has identified that for 21st century Americans, we have two gods, little g-gods. Accomplishment, which includes their cousins of legacy and meaning, and accumulation. And I think what's particularly insidious for the 21st century church are those two gods, accomplishment and accumulation, have snuck their way in. And we don't even know it. We don't know it. And this is not just the church at Haynes Creek. This is, this is the Universal Church, capital C. These gods have made their way in. They are our modern-day bales, and we don't even see them when they're right there in front of us, myself included. I mean, I went to breakfast, and I got peeved at a guy who wanted to translate the Bible because I came up with the idea before he did. What? Let me give you a couple of ways that I, I think these two, two gods, lowercase g, have made their way into our churches. And as they make their way into our churches, they threaten our unity, which threatens our joy, which threatens our ability to live that abundant life that Paul describes in verse 1. We, we, we bought into the lie that the church is only valuable in accomplishing a mission. We're, we're only, we only have meaning in accomplishing this thing. And by the way, it needs to be accomplished the way I want it accomplished on the timeline I want it accomplished on. The struggle is, what, what do we hear God saying about himself? You go to the burning bush, what does God say? He doesn't say, he doesn't say look at what I've done even though he spoke the entire world into existence. He doesn't say, look at what I could do, or look what, what I will do. I'll destroy the most powerful nation on earth with a word. Now, what does God say? God says, I am. I am being. I am. And you see all throughout the, 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 the arc of redemptive history from creation to revelation that God rests 
and God is, and God gives comfort, and he is the reason that that life of chapter, of verse 1 can exist. It's not accomplishment. It never has been, never will be. Accomplishment does nothing but make us feel good about ourselves. And as we feel good about ourselves, we get that dopamine hit. We just want it more and more and more and more and more. And then you wake up one day, and nobody likes you. You don't like them. Your church is in shambles. Your life is in shambles. For what? I think a, a second way that this, this accomplishment and accumulation has, has made its way into our churches is that prayer and meditation and rest and solitude have been sacrificed at the altar of the ever-fleeting feeling of, look at what I've done. I mean, you, you, you look at a church, it doesn't matter the size or the place. What does everybody want? They want more. They want better. They want accumulation. They want accomplishment. What does God call us to? What does God, what does God call his church to be? What, what is the fruit that God describes? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Are they nicer, better, bigger, more? No, they're love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Our churches have become places where spirituality is out. The practice of the disciplines, the knowing of God has been replaced with self-fulfillment. We come to the church to be made whole, to feel as though I am complete, to accomplish the things that we are not able to accomplish in other areas of life. What's, what's so painful about this is that I, I think if you ask any of us who have been in the Lord, or even those of us who aren't, what kind of life we want. It's like, do, do, you, do you want the life that Paul describes? Do you want encouragement in Christ? Do you want, you want freedom from fear and anxiety and worry? Do you want rest? Do you want care? Do you want embrace? Do you want to live with power and assurance? And do you want to commune with others? Is that the life you want? We'd all say yes problem is our little g gods are carrying us the complete opposite direction when we chase accomplishment and accumulation in our personal lives and in our church what do we get we get despair we get mental health issues that are through the roof we get brokenness du jour and most painfully for the church, you get disunity. You get, you get instead of 100 people working together in unity for the cause of Christ, you get 100 people trying to find their fulfillment and their accomplishment and their accumulation in the walls of a church. And brothers and sisters, that's just not what the church is here for. So, so what do we do? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? I'm going to give you a couple kind of strategic high-level ideas. We're going to get really practical for a few minutes. Um, and, and then we're going to end with some reflection and prayer and encouragement. So strategically, for us as individual Christians and for us as a church and for any other church you go to, unity must be the priority. Unity must be the priority. Now, we'll talk about, in a minute, theological differences in these, these different areas where unity is not possible. But what, what does Paul say in verse 28 and in chapter 2, verse 2? He says, if you want a clear sign to the world around you of your salvation that is from God, what is that sign? It's unity. How, do we, how does Paul's joy become complete? In unity. So our priority is not what we think is right, quote unquote. Our priority is unity. Above all things. Above all things. 
Now, that, that, is, that is an impossible task for us to accomplish in our flesh. Because yet again, our, the, the, the gods of our day are carrying us as swiftly as, as it can in the opposite direction. But humility and prayer changes everything. There there have been two, two moments specifically in the life of this church where I can tell you that I can stand before you and with clarity and conviction preach to you that this is absolutely true. When... When we were drafting a constitution and a bylaws, there were four of us, five of us from Haynes Creek. There were two gentlemen from First Baptist Covington. And so you can imagine, like, all the different ecclesiological backgrounds and polity ideas and convictions about how this, that, and the other could do. I mean, you, you had seven people there, and I think none of us had the same idea about anything. And so, I mean, we, we methodically marched through this and that and the other. And, you know, I, there were times where I was like, I, I don't know if this is ever going to get done. Like, how could it? You have seven well-intentioned men who love the Lord, who have a difference of opinion about how this should be done. We kept talking. We kept dialoguing. We kept praying. And... I still remember it was this was this was in the height of COVID, so it was on a Zoom call, and the you, you could tell that the prayer and that the humility had produced change. Not in a I'm right, you're wrong, but in a this is the path forward, and it, it was like a light went on. And from there, you know, things got finished, and here we are today. But I'm telling you, without humility and without prayer, that change would have never come. And I can tell you in my own personal life, that change that happened over that six-month period has given me more hope in Christ, more joy in my salvation, and, and more promise for this church than anything ever could. Because there's one thing that's for sure. If us seven men sat down at a table in our flesh to hash that out, we'd still be hashing it out. We would have never gone anywhere. I'll give you a second encouragement in this. Here we are in 2023. Travis has been here, I think, this month's a year. This month's a year. As, uh, as you might can imagine... We find ourselves in not too different of a place that we were in four years ago, except instead of seven of us, now it's four of us, and we see eye to eye on about 3% of the things that happen. But what I can tell you is that over the last 12 months, in prayer and in humility and in humble conversation with one another, God has brought alignment. And I'm here to tell you, here's here's where the great joy lies in this. The great joy lies in not, ah, see, I was right, because that's accomplishment. The great joy is in, you know what, I don't know if I was right or wrong, but the Lord changed me, and here we go. That's where the joy lies, is when you change. When you think you know, and you change, that's where the joy lies. So, for a few minutes, I just want to give us some very practical Consideration, some, some very real life examples that come up in churches and how we think through this in this mindset of humility and prayer, considering others more significant than ourselves. So the first is theological differences, right? Um, and th- this is why churches break fellowship together all the time. I mean, you can see in the United Methodist Church right now, there are churches left and right making decisions about can we stay, can we go, all of those sorts of things. When we think about theological differences, we want to divide those into two categories. There are what I call first things. So these are gospel-required teachings. So if we get these wrong, then we are in heresy. We are no longer preaching the truth of the gospel. 
Things of first priority, these first things, are things that just require breaking of fellowship. There can be no unity in these first, in differences amongst these first things. But then there are secondary things, and there is a litany of them. We could start naming them and take a piece of paper from that door to that door, and we'd fill it up. The secondary things require this, require humility and prayer. Because many of these secondary things, while there may be wisdom and there may be things that are more wise or less wise, these are not things that rise to the level of the breaking of fellowship together. Now, the question is, how do you know those things? Let me give you this context. Hopefully it will be helpful for you. We live in a society, 21st century America, where there's a church on every corner. You can find every flavor of the week you want. You want it fast, slow, formal, informal, reformed, not reformed. You name it, you can find it. Like, I mean, for crying out loud, you can walk across the field and find a church that's completely different than ours. So the options abound. But here's what we have to, the question we have to ask ourselves as it, as it relates to unity. If we picked ourselves up and we put ourselves in Somalia, where there are, I don't know, maybe 50 Christians in the entire country. The first things are those things where we say, you know what, even with those 50, I can't fellowship with them, I can't worship with them, I can't commune with them. The secondary things are the ones where it's like, you know what, brother, there's only 50 of us, and we got the important stuff right, so let's rock and roll. So if we find ourselves in that camp, even, even if we have conviction over things, pray, humbly pray, talk with your brother, talk with your sister, understand them, understand their concern, their struggle. And here's the key, let God change you. If we want the joy and we want that abundant life that Paul describes in verse 1, we have to let God change us. Second kind of group of practical consideration considerations are ecclesiological or polity differences. So this is where the Constitution and bylaws, this is, this is that whole world. I can tell you that these are largely important but secondary issues. We all have opinions about how we think the best way is to make decisions and to elect officers and all these sorts of things. And there, there are camps on this spectrum all across the globe. And they, these, are large, these are important issues. Please hear me say these are important issues. But they are secondary issues. So when you find yourself wrestling with an ecclesiological or polity question, humility, prayer, conversation with your brother and sister. And let God do what he's going to do with you. If you hold tightly to your opinion, what you're seeking is accomplishment, not abundant life. Third, issues of sin. Um, in issues of sin, we're going to go to Matthew 18 all the, without fail. This is, if your brother catches you in sin, go address him directly. If he refuses you, take another. If, they ref, if, if he refuses them, then bring them before the church. So issues of sin are not issues where we just turn, turn our face and act like it doesn't exist. Those are issues where we address our brother and our sister in love um, and pursue unity in those things. And then the last, last one that's going to catch a lot of things is what I'll call practical differences. And goodness knows the world around us loves to make fun of us for this one because we as churches can find any and every manner of things to disagree about when it comes to practical matters. With all of these, everything from the color of the carpet to the style of the worship to the jeans the pastor wears or doesn't wear, whatever, these are all in this category of humble prayer, conversation with your brother and sister, and waiting on the Lord to change your heart. So very practically, for us as a church, as this little body of believers here at the church at Haynes Creek, our, our effectiveness 
and the things God has called us to will be directly linked to our directly linked to our unity together. Listen, there there is no greater joy than the Lord over time and through prayer and through reading of His Word over and over and over. And you wake up one day and you go, you know what? I think what I thought was so important wasn't actually that important. And the joy that comes with that is unspeakable. Unspeakable joy. And, and you, you want to talk about a moment where the, the life Paul describes in verse 1 is real and apparent. Man, those moments are sweet and they are rich. And you just realize, what am I so worked up about? What is it? And it is it worth me losing my joy and, and leaving behind this abundant life that we have available to us just to be proven right? I mean, is it not God who justifies at the end of the day? I want to take a, a, a step back for just one minute. Because disunity is not only found in the church, right? It's found in our homes. It's found in our relationships with other people. Same thing applies. If you got problems in your marriage and you got problems with your kids, you know what you need to do? You need to humbly pray. You need to talk with your spouse or your child or your friend, and you just wait, and you talk, and you pray, and you talk, and you pray, and you commune, and you pray, and then you wake up one morning, and it's like, what was I so worked up about? I was worked up about me not accomplishing, or me not accumulating. That's what I was worried about. Find joy in that. Find joy in that. Before, before we take a few minutes to, to consider and pray and, and worship together, um, I just, just want to encourage, encourage us. We have an incredible opportunity. That we as the church at Haynes Creek, we as people sitting in this room, have the opportunity to live our lives differently than those around us. But we got to make the choice to do that. And I know it's hard, it's fearful, I felt it, I've struggled with it. I still struggle with it. I'm not, I'm just as prone to this as anybody else in this room. But pray, humbly seek God. Be, be open to the fact that what you think is so important may not be that important. Seek unity. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Paul says it, and I can tell you from my own life and the experience of this church over the last three years, you will find joy unspeakable. You will find that abundant life that God holds for us. So I'm not a, uh, I'm not a big, you know, bow your head and close your eyes kind of guy, but you caught me on a day where I'm telling stories and we're going to bow our head and close our eyes for a few minutes. Truthfully, though, I, I want us to, to allow, allow the truth of what Paul's saying here to seek into our hearts. So I, I, I just want to give us a, a few minutes in, in silence and in solitude to consider a couple of things. First, what, what are those things that are causing you that consternation and pain and struggle, whether it's with this church whether it's with another brother or sister, whether it's with your spouse, your kids, whatever those things may be. And then prayerfully consider and take those things to the Lord and ask him the question, like, Lord, what is it that you would have me do with these things? What is it that you would have me do with these things? And then I'll, I'll come back and I will... I will close this in, in a word of prayer. Johnny will come up and, and start leading us in worship. After, after I've prayed, um, feel free. We, we take the Lord's Supper here each and every Sunday. 
as you've communed with God and wrestled with your, your pain and your struggle and your suffering, come to these tables. Because in these tables is that joy. When we, when we lay aside our desires, when we lay, desire, lay, lay aside those lowercase g's, we can come to this table and we can commune and we can fellowship with the Lord. So take a few minutes in silence and in solitude. Consider those things. I'll come back. I'll pray for us. And Johnny will come and uh, we can commune together at the Lord's table. So take a few minutes in silence and solitude and then I'll close us out. Father, we, we, we come before you and thankful for, for silence, thankful for, for solitude and for communion with you. Father, in, in a world and in a time where we live at frantic paces to achieve and to accumulate, we thank you that you stand before us with open arms offering rest and recovery and peace and joy. Father, we, we, we confess that so often we spend our lives concerned with, worried about, fighting for, things that are fleeting and that truly don't matter. Father, that, that brings pain to those around us. That brings pain to our brothers and sisters. That brings pain to our families. But God, it, it, it pulls us away from the life that you desire for us. This life of encouragement in Christ comfort and love and power in the spirit and affection and sympathy with one another. So Father, we, we humbly ask that, that we come back before you time and time and time and time again with whatever it is that our hearts struggle with or find painful or that we find at odds with our brother or our sister or our spouse. Father, we pray we come back time and time and time and time again and just humbly ask you to change us, to let us find the joy in you doing work that we never thought possible. Father, we, we ask that, 
that she would help us be always mindful of this. That, that we would not look upon this and then leave today and quickly forget the, the joy that lies in living this type of life. Father, as, as we come to, to commune at the table and to sing together, Father, we, we ask that, that you empower us to live that long obedience in one direction. That when we stumble, when we fall, when we find ourselves trapped in anxiety and fear and worry, that you give us rest and silence and solitude and peace to come before you, to pray to you, and to ask you to change us. Father, we'll, we'll close with John Newton's words. He says, May the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above. Thus may we abide in union with each other and the Lord and possess in sweet communion joys which earth cannot afford. Father, we're humbled. We're speechless. We know we're unworthy. But man, does it bring a smile to our face to know that you are a God who sees us, who cares for us, and who loves us enough to tell us when we're wrong and change our hearts. Father, be with us now as we sing and as we worship and as we commune together. In your precious holy name we pray.